how good is it to be back in fellowship? Woohoo! One had a really uh, blessed two-week vacation, spring break, and then to finish it off with a celebration of the resurrection. What could be better than that? Huh? Hey, a couple of years ago, oh, first of all, did everybody get a handout? Handout, handout. If you did not, raise your hand and one will be put in it because they're just that efficient. I see that hand. All right. Oh, I see that hand. Hello. While you're getting those things sorted out, uh, in 2002, I believe it was, spring break, as I was preparing these notes for today's teaching, I couldn't help but remember that during that spring break that year, my oldest son was a senior in high school, my middle son was a freshman, and then our daughter, four years younger, was still being homeschooled, and uh, so we decided that we were going to take a cruise, first one of my life ever. And so we did that, what they call the Mexican Riviera cruise. You start in L.A., and you go down the, yes, there you go, down to Puerto Vallarta, stops along the way, and then back up. Yes, yes. And so uh, we drove to L.A., parked our, our minivan, and then on the reverse, I mean, on the end of the cruise, of course, we had to do the reverse. And I was driving, and it was getting late and later and later at night as we're making that trek from L.A. to Phoenix. And I, so I, to stay alert and to keep things going in the car, I just started asking questions of all of my children and my husband and saying things like, which, which uh, of the fancy meals that we had, which was your favorite? What did you try? You know, did you try the frog legs? Like I was sitting there and I saw it. But, you know, did you try it? What did you think? You know, just asking those kinds of general questions. And, and in doing that, we sort of covered the whole of that week-long cruise, all the little details, and then everybody laughed at different parts, and we just enjoyed that time. And so I'm driving, and it got kind of quiet there for a few minutes, and my oldest son said, did you see the topless deck? <laughs> you know, the brakes screeching down the highway. What? Says the mother. He says, yeah, there was a little rope over the staircase that went up, and it said, tops optional. 18 and older, 21 and older, whatever it was at the time, and I was horrified. Y'all, I walked all over that ship. I walked every square inch of it, up, down, all around, and took my children with me. I never saw this thing. I never saw it, and I was so horrified that I had exposed my children to something unintentionally. Of course, they didn't because they weren't old enough. Nobody from my tribe got up there, but the fact that here is my senior and high school boy thinking about, you know, there's a topless deck up there. That did not make mama happy. <sighs> and so I'm like giving a little tirade. I can't believe it. There's no safe place. You know, whatever, tirade, tirade. And then it got quiet again for just a moment. I'm <sighs> breathing. And my son, who's a freshman in high school, said, I saw that sign. What? Why didn't anybody tell me? He said, I thought it meant you didn't have to wear a hat. My goodness, to the pure, all things are pure. But as I was preparing the notes for today, I was thinking, is there a more uh, needed trait in the church than holiness right now? We are living in a crooked and perverse generation, and so did the writers of the entire Old Testament and the New. Nothing is new under the sun. I do get a sense of greater urgency that at any moment 
we could be standing in the throne room any moment before our holy God. And the time to start learning to live in a holy manner is right now. And so as we come into the Holy of Holies and take a look today and next week at the single most holy piece of furniture in the tabernacle, I think it's a challenge to all of us to really go before the Lord quietly, alone with him, and find out how we're doing. To look in the mirror of God's word and to be still before him and know that he is God and find out how we're doing. Lord, is there anything in my life, anything in my heart, any way that I'm thinking that is crooked and perverse? Because our Lord Jesus came not to compromise, but he came to fulfill the law, every jot and every tittle. And when he hung on that cross and cried out, it is finished, we know that he had satisfied the letter of the law. And we are coming to a day soon and very soon, I think, where, where we will hear him say, it is done. And we will no longer be subject to sin and to death and to the temptations of this world. But we will stand in the presence of the most holy, the most high God. And I'm looking forward to that day. And by his grace, I get to go. Not because of anything I have ever done or can do or will do, but purely by the blood of the Lamb. That's my only qualification. So knowing that I have come past the altar of sacrifice and the laver outside in the courtyard where everything that Jesus has paid for, we see there and we see washed away. Remember that the curtains stood on sockets of bronze. It's all about judgment in the courtyard. But once you come through the one and only door into the tabernacle, that rests on sockets of silver. That is symbolic, if you recall, of blood, of redemption. And then we see the golden lampstand illuminating, the table of showbread ready, prepared, and waiting for us to have communion. We have the altar of incense, knowing that our God is interceding for us. But now we're invited through his flesh, the torn veil, to enter into this perfect, holy environment called the Holy of Holies, the Sanctum Sanctorum. It's also called the Most Holy Place. And in it, we will find the Ark of the Covenant covered with the mercy seat. Now, God always speaks of these two things as one. We are going to look at them as two separate things this week and next, but just so you know that they are not looked upon by God as two separate things. It is a whole unit. And as we approach, you will see on your handouts that you have the instructions for the building of and for the moving of. And I would recommend that uh, this week sometime you read through those references about the moving of, because, moving of, because I'm going to reference those a couple times in today's teaching. The location, of course, for this is behind the veil in the Holy of Holies. And as you read the instructions for the building of the tabernacle and uh, constructing the veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place, you see that this is a perfect cube. And if you take that image into the book of Revelation and you read about the new heavens and the new earth, you will see that perfect cube again. This is God's throne on earth. And it is a model of the real deal in heaven. So this perfect cube was 15 cubits by 15 by 15. And in it sat this one piece of furniture. It is made of acacia wood, 
overlaid inside and out with pure gold, and it stood roughly three and three-quarter feet long, and its width and its height were the same, roughly two and a quarter feet, both high and wide. It's a rectangular chest. You could call it a treasure chest because it contained three things, a golden pot of manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and it contained the testimony, the tablets of stone. And so important is this treasure chest that God has been known to refer to the whole tabernacle as the place of meeting or the tent of the testimony. So this is the focus. And I do find it interesting for you all, especially as we're coming along summertime, to start reading from the beginning in Exodus chapter 25 and go all the way through to see the order that God presents these furnishings. We started outside with the altar of sacrifice, but God starts right here. He starts in the heart of the tabernacle when he gives the instructions to Moses. And so I'd like to read those now. We're going to start in uh, Exodus 25. And because it's been so long since we began, I will just start in verse 1 to refresh our memories about the whole process of God giving the instructions to Moses. Exodus 25, verse 1 is where, well, you know what? I'm going to back up one verse to 24, 18. It says, Moses entered the midst of the cloud as he went up to the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. And during that time, God will give him the Ten Commandments and the blueprints. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Tell the sons of Israel to raise a contribution for me. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall raise my contribution. This is the contribution which you are to raise from them, gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet material, fine linen, goat hair, ram skins dyed red, porpoise skins, acacia wood, oil for lighting, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and setting stones for the ephod and for the breastplate. Let them construct a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them. According to all that I am going to show you as the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furnish furnishings, just so shall you construct it. So God gave him the pattern. I don't know. Did he lift a veil between spiritual and physical and show him the real deal in heaven? I'm not sure how this played out, but whatever it is, God will repeat several times, build it like the one I showed you. Build it after the pattern that I gave to you on the mountain. And Moses did faithfully, so faithfully, that we could go out and build one for ourselves if we wanted to, according to the dimensions we've been given. But more importantly to me is not the physical, tangible pieces of furniture, but the picture it gives me of my Savior. I see Jesus Christ in every detail. We have no clearer picture of him than we do in the tabernacle. And I mentioned this way at the beginning of the semester, that apart from Jesus himself, there is nothing else spoken of more often in Scripture than this tabernacle. Now that you have most of it under your belt, go read the book of Hebrews. It's a whole new world. 
I promise you that. So we read the instructions now starting in verse 10 for the ark. They shall construct an ark of acacia wood, two and a half cubits long, one and a half cubits wide, and one and a half cubits high. You shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside and out, you shall overlay it, and you shall make a gold or crown around it. You shall cast four gold rings for it and fasten them on its four feet, and the two rings shall be on one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. You shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark with them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be removed from it. You shall put into the ark the testimony which I shall give you. And next week we'll pick up from right there and read about the mercy seat. But before we get to the items that are inside the ark, I just want to make note of something that may arise from verse 15 regarding the moving of the ark. It says in the King James that the staves or the poles shall be in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. If you keep your place here, turn to Numbers chapter 4. We will see a portion of the moving of instructions. Chapter 4, verse 5. Verses 5 and 6, we will read. And it says, When the camp sets out, Aaron and his son shall go in, and they shall take down the veil of the screen and cover the ark of the testimony with it. And they shall lay a covering of porpoise skin on it, and shall spread over it a cloth of pure blue, and shall insert its poles. Now again, verse 15 back in Exodus 25 said, you're not supposed to remove the poles from it. So what's the story here? It seems like it's a contradiction of some sort. Not to remove from it, not to be taken from it. I don't really know what the explanation is. What I get from this is that these poles... Though they were made like the poles that carried other pieces of furniture, acacia wood overlaid with gold, they are not to be interchanged with other pieces of furniture. They are sanctified for the ark and the ark alone. And the lesson that I take from that is that I am not to be playing fast and loose with holy things. Years ago, I, I listened to a song that was sung by uh, Steve Camp way back in the 80s. I don't know if any of you remember him. And this song has never left me when I think of this. He asked in the lyric, are we playing marbles with diamonds? And I think very often that's what we do with holy things. Whether it be the communion elements that are passed and we just slam them down without really considering. I used to tell my children when they were growing up, Every time the communion was being passed, I would say to each one of them, stand at the laver. Look into the, God's word right now before you take this holy thing and make sure you are right with God, that you don't take this communion in an unworthy manner. When I, talk, when I think about the word of God, how precious it is that the entire revealed word of God is right here in the palm of my hand. If I am not keeping this holy if I am reading things here and then saying, no, that doesn't suit me, so I just won't, I'll just turn the page and go on. That's playing marbles with diamonds. So when I look at this about the poles, I honestly don't know if the poles were to be removed, 
the ark covered, then they're slid back in really quickly. The idea is that God gave that instruction for the protection of the priests. Because we read in Numbers chapter 4, verse 20, that if anybody should even look at these holy things, they will die. Go through your scripture sometime and look for the times that God gives instruction and then follows it up by telling the instructed, lest you die. Do it like this or you will die. And so he put these instructions in place to preserve the priesthood and to protect his servants. The first time we read that kind of instruction, lest you die, is in the Garden of Eden. And it's regarding the tree of life. He says in Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. What that says literally is dying, you will die. And they didn't drop dead on the spot. They died spiritually on the spot. Immediately, they were separated from God the Father. And the process of death entered into the humanity, the family, human family at that moment. So dying, they were dying. God told them not to eat of the tree because he loved them and he wanted to protect them. But he had to give them a choice. Otherwise, he would just have automatons. We would just do what we had to do. He could have made robots to do that for him. But he wants us to want to enter into the holy place and have this relationship with him and to make the way clear through Jesus Christ and to protect us in the process. But we must hold holy things high and not play fast and loose. To obey is better than sacrifice. Now, I do know that they were experts at moving, breaking down the tabernacle and moving it. And the signal for their moving was the uh, pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. But there were also specific trumpet blasts that signaled that it was time to get going. And I don't know if you are aware of this, but we're waiting for a trumpet blast as well. We don't know when God is going to tell us to strike these tents and get out. I'm good to go. But that's what we're waiting for, the sound of a trumpet blast, and we need to be prepared to obey the minute we hear the call. So poles or no poles, I don't know how it works. We'll ask when we get there. Moses, I have a few questions about what you wrote down for me, but in the meantime, we are going to move on to the location information. So Exodus chapter 26, we get a description of the veil and the beautiful enclosure that is the Holy of Holies. Uh, chapter 26 of Exodus, verses 31 through 34. And we read, You shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet material and fine twisted linen. It shall be made with cherubim, the work of a skillful workman. You shall hang it on four pillars of acacia overlaid with gold, their hooks also being of gold, on four sockets of silver. You shall hang up the veil under the clasps and shall bring in the ark of the testimony there within the veil. And the veil shall serve for you as a partition between the holy place and the holy of holies. You shall put the mercy seat on the ark of the testimony in the holy of holies. And so you have this perfect environment that is for beauty and for glory and in it this treasure chest.
And let's get back now to the contents that we read about in the ark. First of all, the pot of manna. Uh, second was Aaron's rod that budded. And the third thing were the tables of stone, the covenant. And you can track these down using the information that I have printed for you in the handout, but they are succinctly listed in the book of Hebrews. So in Hebrews 9.4, I will read this one for you, but for your notes, it's Hebrews 9.4. We read, The Ark of the Covenant, covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden jar holding the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tables of the covenant. And Jesus is symbolized in all three of these things as prophet, priest, and king. We know that his humanity is represented in the acacia wood and that it is overlaid with gold as a representation of his deity. And so the humanity of Jesus is always before us, but his deity is always there as well. And in it, this golden pot of manna, Jesus said, I am the bread of heaven. I am the bread of life. We know that in the Old Testament, that the living word, the bread of life, are all seen to come to perfection in Jesus Christ. And in the Old Testament, any person who spoke the truth and the word of God was called a prophet. And Jesus is the prophet. And there are several references for this. I believe I have them for you in your uh, handout. Psalm 40, verse 8. Matthew 5, 17. And chapter 13, 57, and chapter 21, verse 11, and in Luke 24, 19. I believe I have them printed there for you, and if I go too fast, you can get online and listen to the tape. All right. When God caused Aaron's rod to bud, he brought that dead stick to fruitful life. He specified Aaron as his choice for high priest in doing that miraculous work. Jesus Christ is our great high priest. He is the resurrection and the life. And he, as our great high priest, delights to intercede on our behalf before the throne of God. We see that in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. And also in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 35. And then finally... Jesus is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Moses was the lawgiver. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. He is the law maker. The law was given, but grace and truth came. It's a beautiful image that we see here. I love that Jesus is pictured in all of these details in the Ark of the Covenant, and he kept if you will, because all these items were kept in the ark, he kept something that no one else has ever been able to do, and that is the Ten Commandments, the law of God in all of its parts and particulars. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 and 18, he says, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy but to fulfill, for verily I say to you, Till heaven and earth pass, not one jot or tittle will pass from the law till all be fulfilled. He was able to keep perfectly every word of God. 
And we are under grace. Of course we are. No longer under the law, but the word of God in its entirety, and that includes the law, is perfect and it is holy. And we should preserve it and keep it by the power of the Holy Spirit for the glory of the Lord. Matthew Henry, writing about this very thing, says that the tables of the law were carefully preserved in the ark for the purpose to teach us to make much of the word of God and to hide it in our hearts, in our innermost thoughts, as the ark was placed in the Holy of Holies. I don't know if you remember our very, very first teaching of this session. We talked about the wonders of the ancient world. And where are they now? In rubble and ruin for the most part. Nothing like their former glory, even the pyramids. And I asked repeatedly the question, what does it look like now? And then when we got to the holy of holies in the tabernacle, what does it look like now? It looks like you, if you are in Jesus Christ. You see it every time you look in the mirror. You are the, uh, the dwelling place for the glory of God. So when we read these things, understand that it is a picture of Jesus, but it's also a picture of Christ in you, the hope of glory. You bear him about everywhere you go. And it's a holy, holy privilege. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, said the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds, and I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Unfortunately, as we have looked at some of these pieces of furniture, I pointed out that we learn a lot from the misuse of several articles of furniture, and there are a couple of stories that uh, surround the ark that are just astounding to me. And I pray that we learn from the mistakes that these people made because they were grievous mistakes regarding the ark of the covenant. In 1 Samuel chapters 4 through 6, you will read a story that begins with the tabernacle located in Shiloh. And it was placed there after the conquest of the promised land. And that is in Joshua chapter 18, verse 10. So they placed the tabernacle in Shiloh. And it remained there through the time of the judges uh, and until this day, the day of the story that we're about to look at. Samuel at this time was the nation's prophet and Eli was their high priest. And the Philistines had arrayed in battle against the Israelites. And at the point of this story, they have already killed 4,000 Hebrew men. So what are the Israelites going to do? At this time, they were not in close fellowship with the Lord at all. They were playing marbles with diamonds. And so what is a wayward uh, desperate Israelite going to do in face of this imminent slaughter. They decide to fetch the ark. And that's how the Bible describes it. Fetch the ark. It's as if they now have reduced God Almighty to a lucky charm as represented there in the Ark of the Covenant, like a lucky rabbit's foot or something like that. I never had one of those when I was a kid. They creeped me out, but I've seen them. I don't know if they're, it's probably way incorrect to have anything like it now. But, you know, people will do the craziest things to bring luck 
And these people are doing a very crazy thing. And so here they are standing before their perennial enemies. And they say, I got an idea. Let's go fetch the ark and bring it into battle because it's God in a box. And how can we lose if we bring God in a box out to the battlefield? Well, they do it. And they send to Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. And these guys are so wicked. God says of them in holy writ, he says, they did not know the Lord, but they are priests in the tabernacle. Their dad, Eli, is the high priest, but these guys are wicked, wicked men. And so uh, we know from the whole revealed word of God that the Lord has said, don't take the ark into battle unless I specifically tell you. And he did tell them in Joshua chapter 6. This is right at the beginning of their conquest of the promised land. And they approach this city of Jericho that is formidable. And God's battle plan when he fought for Israel on that day was get the ark, put it out in front of you, and march around the city. Many of you are familiar with that story in Joshua chapter 6 if you would like to review it. God fought on behalf of Israel that day and gave them a mighty victory. So if God says get the ark, you get the ark in obedience. But otherwise, you don't look at it. You don't touch it lest you die. That's his instruction for their protection. So here we go with the lucky charm. They go to uh, Hophni and Phinehas in Shiloh. They say, sure, great idea. We'll fetch the ark to the battlefield. And so they bring it out. And when the ark approaches the battlefield, all the Israelites there begin to stomp on the ground and cheer. And they create such a tumult, such almost earthquake-shattering noises and, and sensations that the Philistines say, oh, no, their God has come into the camp. And we're in trouble now. And then they say, fight Fight. It reminds me of that. See, I get stuff in my head and I can't get it out. Planet of the apes. Fight like apes. But, you know, whatever. So the Philistines, you got to give them credit. They, they think they're in big trouble because the God of the Israelites has showed up. And they know the stories of the wilderness for 40 years and how God has defended his people. So they're like, well, let's fighting. And then what happens? They rout the Israelites, defeat them soundly. Let me get the, the number of dead here. Where is it? Where is it? Something like 30,000 Israelites are killed in this battle, including Hophni and Phinehas. And then the Philistines capture the ark and take it away. Now, one soldier runs back to Shiloh with this ill news. And Eli at the time has grown very heavy. He's very old. He cannot see. And he's been listening, listening. Now, he knew that his sons took the ark. So he's listening for the news. And this runner comes back and he says, 30,000 dead. Your sons, Hophni and Phinehas, dead. And the ark is taken. Eli, upon hearing this news, and I think it's the news about the ark, not the other stuff. He falls over backwards, breaks his neck, and he dies. And then... Phineas's wife, who was great with child, hears this same ill news, and she goes into premature labor, gives birth to a son, and names him Ichabod. The glory of the Lord has departed. And it's a sad and tragic day for all. Now, the glory of the Lord cannot depart because the glory of the Lord is not contained in a box. He deigned to appear and dwell between the cherubim in their presence, but God is not limited to the box. 
What happened is that the glory of the Lord had, had departed perhaps from the priesthood. And this symbol of God's presence in their midst is now in the hands of these wretched enemies. It's sad and tragic and completely avoidable. To obey is better than sacrifice. To hold holy things in a holy fashion. But the story does not end there. We pick it up with the Philistines. And this is some of the most amazing stuff in scripture to me. So here uh, we have in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 7. What do the Philistines do after they capture the ark? Well, that they do what pagans do. They take this trophy from the battlefield because their thinking is, if we can conquer and steal your God in a box, that means our God is stronger than yours. So we're going to take God in a box and we're going to put him in the temple of our God, Dagon, as an offering to Dagon. Now, Dagon is their God. He is half man, half fish, like a merman kind of deal. And so they set the ark in front of Dagon and off they go to do whatever it is they do. The next morning they come back and whoops, Dagon is down on his face before the Ark of the Covenant. Pastor Damien Kyle notes that the language that is used in our scripture, um, it, uh, that what they saw upon entering the temple was that the priests thought they were interrupting a worship service. Josephus writes on this, he says, but when they, the, pre, the pagan priests, went into the temple the next morning to worship their God, they found him paying the same worship to the ark. For he lay along as having fallen from the base whereon he stood. Josephus called it a posture of adoration to the ark. And I'm going to tell you right now, you show up and your God is on his face before something else falling off his pedestal, and you have to stand him back up. There is something wrong with your God. And so what do they do, though? They take their fish God, and they stand him back up on his, on his pedestal, and they go about their business. Day two dawns, and in the King James, I love the way this is worded, in 1 Samuel chapter 5, verse 4, it says, And the head of Dagon, and both the palms of his hands were cut off, and only the stump of Dagon was left to him. So the pagan priests go in and they find headless, handless God. And they said, Dagon it. No, they didn't. <laughs> they didn't. But listen, they come in and what do you see? A headless, handless God. What does that symbolize? You have no head. You have no knowledge. You have no understanding. You have no vision. You have no insight. No wisdom. Nothing. And you have no hands, you're impotent. You can't grasp anything. You can't hold on to anything. You can't serve uh, and protect. So here you have this headless, handless fish god. And what do they do? They stand him back up on his pedestal. And they say, we got to get rid of this ark. Now, there were five Philistine cities that were involved at this time. So they say, what we're going to do is we're going to send the ark over to the brother city. And why do they do this? Not because of Dagon. But God, the God of the ark, he was teaching them, just because you defeated the Israelites does not mean you defeated me. And in order to defeat them, he sent a plague upon them. King James says they were hemorrhoids and mice, an infestation of mice. Now, I don't know, bubonic plague type thing? I don't know, 
But whatever it was, they wanted to get rid of this horrible plague that was on them. And again, Josephus describes it like this. It says that the people who are afflicted by the plague died of the dysentery or flux, a sore sickness that brought death upon them very suddenly. For before the soul could, as usual in easy deaths, be well freed from the body, they brought up their entrails and vomited up what they had eaten and what was entirely corrupted by the disease. We got to get rid of this ark. We don't want God in a box anymore. So when they're afflicted, they send it away to the next city. Same thing happens. They send it to the next city. And the same thing happens. The next city says, whoa, ho, ho, you're not bringing that thing in here. So what's the remedy? They got to give it back. How are you going to give it back to the Israelites? Oh, they come up with this great plan. We're going to get a cart. We're going to put the, the ark on a cart. And we're going to get cows who are still nursing their young. And we're going to hook them up to the cart. And it will be an act of God to separate a nursing cow from her young. So if the cow heads off down the road toward Israelite territory, we know God is in this. But if it doesn't, then we know it's not. And so, of course... We can't just send, we're pagans, so we can't just send the ark back. We've got to send a trespass offering. So they decide to make golden models of their tumors. I don't know who posed for it, <laughs> but this is what pagans do. They make golden models of their tumors and of the mice. They put them on the cart, and then off goes the cart. And the cows are lowing and mooing because they don't want to be separated from their young, but they're still going because God is directing them. And so off goes the ark, and they watch it go down the road. And on the other end, in this place called Beth Shemesh, there are Israelites out working in the field. And as they look up and see the ark coming, tremendous celebration. God in the box is back. Hallelujah. So they come, they get it, they slaughter the cows, they break down the ark, they made an altar, they offer a sacrifice. And then just to be on the safe side, because those pagans had it for however long they had it, I wonder if they took out the manna and the rod and the tables of stone. We better check and see. Now here's the deal. The Israelites had superior knowledge. They had the divine revealed word of God. The pagan Philistines did not. God is always going to hold those with more knowledge more accountable than the pagans. The Israelites knew we're not supposed to look at it or even touch it off and looked inside and God struck them and caused a great slaughter upon them. Now, the Philistines were not going to be destroyed, but they did get disciplined by the Lord. The Israelites, however, are going to receive much more punishment. 1 Samuel chapter 6, verse 19. And he smote the men of Beth Shemesh because they had looked into the ark of the Lord. Even he smote of the people 50,000 and threescore and ten men. And the people lamented because the Lord had smitten many of the people with a great slaughter. Now, only those people ordained by God were allowed to have a hand in moving the ark. King David learned a very hard lesson about this a few years later. He wanted to bring the tabernacle 
to Jerusalem, and, and he eventually wanted to build a house for the Lord. Uh, he learned the hard way, though, that God is very serious about holiness when he attempted to do a godly thing in a Philistine way. Philistines put the ark on a cart. God's instructions are that it be borne by the priests, that it be specifically covered by specific individuals, and then other people come in and lift it and they bear it. But David, in his enthusiasm, decides to compromise the word of God. And he gets the ark and he puts it on a cart. We must do the work of God God's way, or he cannot bless and honor it. Our God is not a God of compromise. So, as they're transporting the ark, the oxen lose their footing, and one of the men who was standing near the ark, I believe he was a priest and probably one of the people that was responsible for informing David how things were supposed to go. David may have tasked this man, Uzzah, saying, you go figure out how to do it and we'll do it. And maybe it was Uzzah's suggestion to put it on the cart. I don't know. But whatever it was, this guy Uzzah put his hand out to steady the ark so it would not fall. And God struck him dead. And David's reaction to that is interesting to me. He got angry. I don't know if you've ever been angry at God. But I know in my experience that if I have any cause to be irritated with the Lord, it's because I'm disobedient and I'm not getting my way, or because I don't know what the Lord has spoken about a certain matter. And so David does what I should do when I am feeling a little peeved at God, and that is go back and do some Bible study and find out what did God say about this thing. So they found out how the ark was meant to be moved, and they moved it in a proper way. Before they did that, though, because they were terrified when Uzzah just slaughtered right there on the spot. They parked the ark in the house of a man named Obed-Edom, and his house began to prosper, and the Lord began to pour out blessing. And I think that's because God was showing David, I am not a God of vengeance, but I am holy, and I am righteous, and you must treat me that way. I am a blessing God. I am a God of mercy and grace. Look what I'm doing to Obed-Edom's household because the ark is there. And I think we can learn a lot of valuable lessons about this whole thing by just reading over these stories and saying, God, who am I in this account? Am I the one that caused the slaughter of innocents because I was playing marbles with diamonds? Am I the one, Lord, that you have given greater knowledge and greater responsibility to? And I'm not paying heed to your word, and therefore leading others astray. Oh, it's so humbling to me, y'all, when I read this story. God is a God, as I say, of mercy and grace and forgiveness. And the remedy for it all is if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But the most important word in that verse to me is if. If I don't confess, then I have tied his hands. And who will be sacrificed because of my disobedience? That's, that just is humbling to me. David had to learn. God's work has to be done God's way. 
Now, I think this is one interesting piece about the ark, and we will close with this. The word that is used here, the Hebrew word is aron. In English, we would spell it A-R-O-W-N, aron. And it is a different word than God uses to describe Noah's big barge or even uh, Moses' little ark of bulrushes. This word, Aaron, the first time it is used in Scripture is in Genesis 50, 26, 5026. And it says, so Joseph died, and he was put in a coffin, Aaron. The ark is a symbol of the covenant between God and man. And that covenant was ratified by the death of God's own son. So as you look at your notes and you read through scripture and you are reminded of the ark, think a coffin, a treasure chest. It's the ark of our salvation. And that is what Jesus Christ is. He is our, our, our ark our refuge, our place of salvation, and he holds everlasting life that we see typified in the pot of manna. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Also in Aaron's rod that budded from death to life, Jesus is the resurrection and the life. A new and fruitful life is possible by the power of the Spirit. And then the tables of stone, those Ten Commandments that he kept perfectly fulfilling all that's something we could never do so he did it for us and in doing it he paid the penalty for sin just as the law required and we now are invited into the holy of holies there was a song we sang back in the 80s that i just love here come into the holy of holies enter by the blood of the lamb Come before his presence with singing, worship at the throne of God, lifting holy hands to the King of Kings, Jesus, Jesus. Oh, ladies, come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord. Let's pray. Father, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for loving us enough to send your son to pay our ransom, and our hearts are so full of joy and thanksgiving but we are so humbled by the lessons of the tabernacle and here, especially of the Ark of the Covenant. And Father, I ask that you would help me and help all these precious women to walk worthy and to help us to obey and to rightly handle everything that you have revealed to us. We pray these things in the name of our sweet Savior Jesus, our strength and our Redeemer, the Ark of our salvation. And all God's children said, Amen. Amen. Bravo. To God be the glory. Ladies, be challenged. And, you know, go and sin no more. <laughs>